Jeremy and I are working through the book of Ephesians in this sermon series here, and, and, uh, and then, of course, in our Sunday morning Bible classes, we're studying the book of Ephesians. And I love Ephesians. I told you guys last week, Ephesians uh, has this amazing vision of God's grand plan. And in particular, it has a vision of how the church, this community that we're part of, this kingdom that Jeremy talked about, how that fits into God's eternal plan, this grand plan that's been going on since before the world was created. So if you have your Bibles, I really do want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I like to hear the sound of pages turning. I can't hear the sound of swiping, but I know it's going on too. It needs to make a sound, really. I'm, I'm serious. It's funny. I was uh, in Washington, D.C. this week, uh, and I was with a bunch of uh, religious people from a bunch of different religious traditions. And uh, this person who uh, honestly was an extremely liberal theologian from a sort of a high church Anglican tradition said he had visited a Church of Christ one time, And two things struck him. He said, man, without instrumental music, you guys can actually sing. He was shocked by that. He didn't know people still did that. And he said, and then when the sermon happened, the preacher would uh, mention some scripture, and then you would hear this sound all through the audience. (laughs) He was struck by that. I thought, doesn't everybody do that? Apparently, not everybody does that. Not everybody is looking up the Scriptures. But I really, really invite you. Ephesians is so good. I really invite you to be looking at it in your own text so it'll be in your head so you can go back and look at it later and, uh, and study it on your own. By grace, you have been saved. That's one of the great claims in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace... You have been saved. And in order to kind of frame that central claim in this section, Paul wants to give us a little bit of context. He starts by giving us the bad news, which is pretty common, in order for us to appreciate the gospel, the good news that he wants to tell us. You've been saved by grace. Saved from what, Paul? Well... That's what verses 1, 2, and 3 are really all about in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the bad news Paul wants us to understand. We weren't just occasionally doing what we shouldn't do. He said we were sold into and willingly participating in an entire system of sin run by the spirit of disobedience that's at work in the people of this age. 
says it's a whole superstructure that was helping us to be involved and continue to be enmeshed and enslaved in the system of sin. You want to fill in the blanks on that first study sheet? Here are here is, is what I had in mind. When Satan, that's who the spirit of disobedience is, when Satan works in us, we work harder and harder at the very things that are killing us. That's the picture we get. Satan has tricked, cajoled, bribed, lied into a system of influence in this world. The system of disobedience to God, of, of rebellion against God. And, and as long as he is working his will, then we find ourselves running faster and faster over the very things that are destroying us. Paul says, you know, the, the lusts of our minds, the lust of our hearts, the lust of our bodies, they just drag us this way and that way, but always deeper and deeper into the system of sin. I ran across this news story when I was researching the sermon. A bonded laborer named Harish, last name not given, West Bengal, India, described to the author Siddhartha Kara, who's a Harvard scholar, taking a loan of $110, the, the Indian equivalent of $110. He needed that in order to be able to marry his sweetheart, uh, Sarika. Two decades later, Harish reported, my entire family is still in debt to the landowner. Sarika and I work in his fields. My sons and their Wives work in his brick kilns. One day my grandchildren will work for this same landowner or his children. There is no way to repay these debts. We will only be free when we die. And, and the article goes on to describe the system of debt slavery, which is illegal. It's illegal by Indian law. It's illegal by U.N. law. Uh, but it still goes on again and again and again. One little time of need, and not just this man, not just his wife, not just his children, but grandchildren and great-grandchildren are now enslaved. It's a system designed to produce that result. Work harder and harder and harder, and all I do is enhance the strength of the person who is keeping me enslaved. My labor goes to make him richer and me poorer. It's a horrifying system. It, it goes on all over the world. Even though it's illegal all over the world, it goes on all the time. And we, we know that's true. And, and I just tell that story to illustrate what I think Paul is trying to help us imagine in verses 1, 2, and 3. Again, sin is not, oh, the occasional slip-up. Sin is a system in place. The spirit of disobedience, that is Satan, has, has, is working in us in order to produce a particular result, which is our death. 
which is our destruction. And we, you know, Harish knows he's being exploited. He's aware. We voluntarily join into this system. We think it's going to work. If I could just, if I could just tell so and so what I think of them just one time, then I would be satisfied. If I could just, just have the right kind of sexual relationship, then I think I would be at peace. If I could just get more money, then peace would be mine. I know it's right there. If I could just get the perfect high, if I could just achieve that, I know that's where joy could be found. If I could just finally punch my boss dead in the face, We tell ourselves lie after lie after. That's what Paul's describing. Just this lust or that lust or this desire or that desire just yanks us around. And we always think, oh, if you could just do the next sin, then that'll be, that'll be the one that puts you over the title. Of course it doesn't. You just pour more and more and more and more of yourself into that pit. And all it does is make you more and more and more dead. Physically dead. It draws you closer and closer to physical death and spiritual death. He says, uh, we were doing this, we were letting the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are a number of ways to read what Paul means means there by children of wrath. The typical way to read it is to say we are under God's wrath. And that's not false, but I don't know that that's even the the full meaning that Paul has in mind. Because the very next section is about God's love, not God's wrath, what God does in response. And so I think it's a picture of our wrath toward God. At least I think that's plausible. That is one of the side effects of sin. One of the ways that the spirit of disobedience can ensure that his slaves stay on the treadmill is to generate variations on hatred of God. And I may be miserable. My adultery may be making me sick. My addiction to pornography may be tearing my soul apart, my, my lust for power or money, may, it may be destroying my family, but the one thing I know I don't need is God. Children of wrath. Children of anger against God. If God is the only place where life is found, the source of life, And the source of new life, if that's the only place, what is the one thing, the spirit that's at work in us, the spirit of disobedience, what is the one thing that spirit doesn't want us to be thinking about, to be taking seriously? And it's God. And so it is in the interest of the spirit that's at work in this system of sin to keep us hating God, to keep us angry at God, to keep us 
turning our back on the very idea of God. That's the bad news. And then Paul tells us the good news. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God being rich in mercy because of great love which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. Why does God save you? Why does God save you? It doesn't have very much to do with you. This is God's overflowing fullness of love when you don't deserve it. For no reason other than His love, God saves us. That's Paul's claim. For no reason other than His love, God saves us. God has no reason that we can think of. I mean, He has no obligation. There's no law that binds Him. There's nothing that, that would say, God, you have to do something about this. No, He doesn't. That's kind of the point. Who made my problems? I did. And other human beings did. I'm enmeshed in a system of sin. Now, it's true my situation is pitiful. But I have made it pitiful. To the extent of my power, I have joined in with the system of sin of this world and continued to immerse myself farther and farther into it. God can in all righteousness say to me, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. Did you ever say that to anybody? You made your bed, now lie in it. You ever? You know, there's a certain creepy satisfaction in saying that to somebody. And saying, I, you know, I'm not going to say I told you so. Yeah, I am. I told you so. You knew where this was going to lead. I warned you about it. And now you've made a mess. And it's your problem. There is a creepy satisfaction in having that reaction. I suppose that easily could have been what God said to us. I sent you prophets. I sent you the Bible. I sent you Jesus. I sent you the church. And you still ripped your life apart and submitted willingly to the spirit of disobedience. You made your bed. Now lie in it. And amazingly, God doesn't say that. God says, out of His this fountain of love that He is, He says, I'm, I think I can fix you. As messed up as you are, 
I think there's hope for you. I think there's a way to save this one. And He reaches out to us. He reaches out to us in order to offer us salvation. Paul makes two claims in this section. He's a God for no other reason other than His love. He says, and, and two things happen. One, God starts where we are dead in sin. And He gives us a new life. Finding us dead in sin, God gives us a new life. We are... Sin is beyond our power. We are enslaved by it. We're willing slaves, but we are enslaved. Every way we turn, sin finds a way to hem us in and trap us. We are dead. And God comes and says, that old life, I want it gone. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to bury it in the waters of baptism. And I'm going to give you a brand new life. You're going to be born again. I'm going to raise you up to be something different than you have been. Your debts are forgiven. Those old chains are gone. You have the right to a new life. Not because of you, but because of Jesus Christ. Finding us dead in sin, God gives us a new life. And then... He says it's more than that. Look, God takes us and sort of installs us in the waiting room of history with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. Jesus is getting ready to come back. We don't know when that's going to happen, but it is inevitable that it's going to happen. And we're there to share in His glory when He does. Spiritually, we're already installed in that. And when Jesus comes, we'll be part of that. To, so that in the ages to come, the, the new heaven and the new earth, God will be pouring out new measures, new things we've never imagined, ways of loving Him and Him loving us. The immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. In other words, we are poor when God finds us. We have thrown away all the treasures that He gave us. He gives us so many good things. He gives us talents. He gives us abilities. He gives us all the different things that this world provides. And we have taken those in our sin and squandered them. And now we find ourselves among the pigs. And and God says, you're so poor. Let me make you an heir. Let me write you into the will. Let me give you an inheritance. Finding us in poverty, God gives us an inheritance. That's what Paul claims. That's the good news. It's by grace we are saved. Through faith. And this, and this refers to salvation probably, this salvation is not of yourselves so that nobody can boast. Salvation is a gift from God that rules out boasting. That's really what he says in verse 8. 
Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God's grace works in us, some things start to happen. When God's real grace takes over our lives, some things start to happen. Number one, we talk more about God than we talk about ourselves. Paul says, the effect of grace is not for you to boast about yourself. Well, look at what I did to become a Christian. Now, Paul thinks you have to respond to the gospel. He thinks that when the call comes, uh, you need to say yes to God. But he says, that doesn't give you any grounds to boasting. It's like being dying in the emergency room and the doctor comes in and the nurses come in and everybody is working to save your life. And they say, would you please hold out your arms so we can give you an IV to save your life? And you do that. Are you going to go after that event and say, I totally saved my own life because I held out my arm? Of course not. Obviously, you have to respond to God's grace, Paul says that, the rest of the Bible says that, but, but there is no boasting about what you did. Nothing's a problem. The more you're aware of God's grace, the more you're going to talk about God. The more you're going to praise God. You're going to say, it would have been so easy for God to just leave me as I was. It would have been so easy for God to just pass me by. And instead, God has worked in my life. He's worked through these different people. He's worked through these different messages. He's worked in all these ways. Some of them I'm sure I don't even know. And God has worked in my life to bring me to salvation. Praise be to God. That's the effect of grace. The more you know about it, the more you're going to talk about God, and the less you're going to talk about yourself. But, he, but Paul goes on and says, the effect of God's grace working in us is we work. You know, grace and works are not opposed to each other. Grace and boasting are opposed to each other in Paul. Grace and works aren't. The effect of God's grace is not to make you passive. It's to finally put you on the path of truly rewarding work. Sin puts you on the path of labor, and it'll be different for each person, but labor that is designed to destroy your life. You're chasing what you can never have. You're chasing what can never save you or give you joy. You're chasing what is killing your soul. You work and you work. You put your best effort into it, and it never pays off. And finally, you can be put to work with God's grace. You can be put to work Building treasures in heaven. You can be put to work actually doing what you were built for. That's what Paul says here. It's one of the great passages. This whole section is full of great passages. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see what that's claiming for us? 
God, part of his plan, I don't know how all this works, but part of his plan is something you can do that no one else can do. There is something special that you can add to the true work of humanity, to the true work of this world, which is the will of God. There's something that you can do that nobody else is in a position to do. God has prepared in advance a job for you. And by grace, you can be lifted out of the muck of sin. By grace, you can be set free of your debts. And by grace, you can finally be given a job that really suits who and what you are. When God's grace works in us, the second point Paul makes is we work at the job we were born for. There is something you are designed to do in the world. You're the only one that can figure what that is, can, can decide and understand what that is. Your mouth was made for a purpose, and the purpose is not spouting off sarcasm or snarky remarks to people that have teased you off. Your hands were made for a purpose, and the purpose is not punching people in the face as much as they deserve it. God doesn't think they don't deserve it. I mean, sometimes they do. But that's not what your hands are made for. God made your body for a purpose, and that purpose is not just seeking this or that or the other pleasure as you wind your soul down into destruction. God has a job for you. He's prepared in advance work for you. And your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to find what God asks you to do and to do it with all your heart. If you want to have true joy and not be frustrated with your life, that's the path. God says, this is what, this is what you should be. Be working at this. And when you do, you find your joy. And you know you're contributing to God's kingdom. Bad news turned into glorious news. Today is 9-11. It's been mentioned in our prayer. It's been mentioned in our communion talk. It's the anniversary 15 years ago of that horrible set of events killed so many people it's a scar in our national memory but for our family the Baird family 9-11 the date has been redeemed because 10 years ago London Baird was born on this date we're going to go home and have cake That doesn't mean we don't feel the pain of what happened on this date, but for our family, something wonderful came afterwards and turned around the emotional valence of these numbers, 9-11. First grandchild in our family, first grandchild in the other family too, our in-laws. First child of those parents, of course, but I'm not concerned about them. I'm a granddad. Out of bad news, glorious news. Paul says, God, in His love, in His wealthy mercy, has reached down 
and taken you from the worst condition and given you the best condition. Church, do we have good news or what? That was really, really quiet. Church, do we have good news or what? Amen. Amen indeed. If you need to respond to this incredible news, if you need to to ask Jesus to forgive you, and if you need to do that in a public way, or if you need prayers for some other need that's pressing in your life and you want to ask for that publicly, or if you are ready to receive baptism, to get the old life dead and buried, to let the new life that God wants to give you come to life, to be born in the waters of baptism, we can help you with that. Why don't you come forward, tell us what we can do as we stand and sing.